Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hasia whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Happy Virgo season to all who celebrate. Coming up, we're going to talk with Vulture critic Catherine Van Arendonk about a new trend we're seeing on TV, white men in crisis. It is this almost like narrative experiment of like, what if we take the guy who used to be the center and then we just shift him slightly off? Plus, Jess Zimmerman tells us about her book, Women and Other Monsters, about why ancient myths feminize so many of their monsters. I don't intend this as like a takedown of mythology, right? Because like this is true of so much of culture. It's really just a takedown of culture. But first, it's our look at the week that was. Our panelists today are two excellent Chicago journalists, WTTW host Brandis Friedman and WBEZ weekend anchor Araceli Gomez-Aldana. Hi, you two. Hey, Greta. Hi, Brandis. Hello. I'm happy to be here. Oh, so excited to have you. So there is a lot of news this week. Uh, The U.S. government is working to quickly evacuate American citizens and Afghan allies from the country, which is now under Taliban rule. The Pfizer vaccine was granted full approval by the FDA. And Pepsi is making a flaming Hot Cheetos Mountain Dew for some reason. But I think we should start with another junk food giant. This week, Taco Bell announced rapper Lil Nas X will be the company's chief impact officer. He used to work at one of the Atlanta locations, so this is quite a promotion. He'll be thinking about menu innovations, which is certainly intriguing. I am curious if either of you would ever have anticipated this career arc for Lil Nas X. What do you think, Araceli? (laughs) I think, I don't know, I was, I'm excited for him to be a 22-year-old chief, chief anything? I mean, (laughs) he he wouldn't even be out of college, right? If you like would have picked that route. So I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally into it. I'm excited. I am curious to see what other people are going to, you know, do. Um, Other companies, like you mentioned, are like doing all of these crazy tactics, but Lil Nas X is an interesting one because he's so controversial, right? Mm-hmm. So, but he's also known to be authentic. And I don't know. It's an interesting pick. It's cool that they have a connection that he used to work there. So he kind of knows yeah. what it's like. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm excited to see what happens with it. And I'll try, I'll try everything. I'll see, I'll see what they got. <laughs> yeah. Game. What about you, Brandis? Are you like a Taco Bell fan as it is? Um, currently not so much. I haven't been to Taco Bell in quite some time, yeah, although same. I will admit to eating quite a bit of it, um, in college. Of course. Um, to, <laughs> to the point where I didn't gain the freshman 15, I gained like the sophomore 15, because that is when <laughs> I was hitting the Taco Bell especially hard. Um, and so, yeah, no, congrats to him. Although I read somewhere, I think it, it might be more like an honorary position. Yes. I mean, and when you put that title in front of it, I'm kind of like, okay, good for you, Taco Bell. Like you still want him. Cause I think it's great that you 
you know, he worked there once upon a time and he's got all of this success. Um, and they're welcoming him back um, to join in a new role, um, you know, using all of the experience and, you know, the creativity um, that he has. But I'm also kind of like, good for you, Taco Bell, for keeping yourself relevant yes. um, by asking someone like Lil Nas X to join you. I don't know much about like his food preferences, because if he's supposed to be coming up with food innovation, I'm kind of curious about where that goes, because yeah. I, I hate to use the word foodie, but I'm particular about my food mm-hmm. um, and I like for it to be good. And so I'm <laughs> so I'm very curious about what he is is going to come up with. I don't know if I'll try everything, but I'm dying to know what it is. I would want to be in those board meetings or meetings that are happening at the high level, like chief officers and little Nas X is there. Like, what is he wearing? What's he going to say? Oh, to be a fly you know? on the wall. <laughs> so we will click on that Zoom link is what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, I'm in the yes. room. I'm in the Zoom room. <laughs> So another interesting story this week is actually about Nirvana. So back in 1991, you know, they released the album Nevermind. That cover art is super well known. It's the naked baby floating in the water, grabbing for a dollar bill. Um, Turns out that kid is 30 now. His name is Spencer Eldon, and he's suing each of the band members and the estate of Kurt Cobain. He's asking for $150,000 in damages from each of them relating to what he's calling child pornography. Um, Now, to be clear, none of us are legal scholars, but I don't know. Do you think this kid has a case, Brandis? Being not a legal scholar, I think it's I think it's a little late to call this child pornography. Um, and yeah. like some of the arguments that they're making that the baby is being sexualized as a sex worker because he's right. reaching for a dollar, which uh-huh. I think that dollar was later on superimposed. It was, yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's a reach because in, you know, the the 30 years since he and I think his family have participated in a number of, you know, interviews talking about it and celebrating the anniversary of the album. Mm -hmm. And he's just now I think, okay, I'm just going to say this. I think he might be under the influence of some talented attorneys who think they've got a case here <laughs> and think that there is money to be made here um, because we all know that album was was really successful. Um, I, I, I don't see how you justify calling this child pornography 30 years later. Surely, and I don't put a whole lot of faith in the government, but surely law enforcement would have looked at that and gone, I think we've got a problem here. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And yeah, as you mentioned, I mean, until recently, he this kid has recreated that album cover, you know, not nakedly, but, you know, he'll put on some swim trunks and jump in the water and they'll take pictures of him, you know, like with the thumbs up, like several times over the course of his life now. And he's alleging that the family only made $200 on it. And, you know, Nevermind is a platinum album, but I don't know. It's just, it's interesting to hear you use the phrase money grab because, you know, the picture obviously is of a child grabbing for money. Literally Mm -hmm. a money grab. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think, Araceli? Yeah, I mean, on that point, the whole point of the album cover was kind of this, like, take on capitalism. 30 years later, he is kind of doing the thing that was used in the album to like kind of, mm-hmm. you know, reflect on <laughs> capitalism. So one of the things that I, when I was reading this, cause I hadn't heard about it and um, I was talking to Richie, my fiance mm. about it. I'm like, can they do this? And he goes, it's America. You can sue anything about anything. Of course they can. <laughs> I point. mean, do they have a case? That's, that's what's gonna, yeah. What, what we won't, we don't know if they have a case, but you know, I being 
NPR nerd, I went back and I listened to an interview with Spencer Alden when he was 17 years old that NPR mm-hmm. did. And mm-hmm. he's very chill about it then. He's like, it's cool, you know, straight yeah. up. Like, it's you know, everybody's seen it. My friends, you know, talk about it. Everybody knows. I'm basically the baby on the Nirvana cover. Quite a few people in the world see my penis. It's kind of cool, I guess. But now he's 30, and now he's like, no, 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 that wasn't okay. So... I don't know. I think they're going to use a lot of what he has said in the past to kind of probably go against yeah. his case now. That like, well, you didn't think it was bad, you know, any other time in your life until now. So we'll see. It's going to be interesting. And I mean, and even more, it seems to me like there might have been a case about 30 years ago when the album cover came out, if it is true that he only got $200. Right. I mean, for nobody could have predicted the future, but at, at you know, it's very basic level, a baby on an album cover of a band like Nirvana, knowing what we know about them at the time, someone should have drawn up a contract for this family um, or filed suit after the fact when they realized that there were royalties to be made on their baby's image. Mm-hmm. It seems like a matter of rights, but I don't know about child porn. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I guess we shall see. Um, so speaking of iconic art, this week, author Brandon Taylor, he recently wrote a book called Filthy Animals, which is a short story collection, which is excellent if you haven't read it. But he recently wrote a tweet that got of a lot of attention, at least in my timeline, And I was curious if it, you know, kind of crossed your paths at all, too. So the tweet he wrote said, I was telling a friend about the chair yesterday and they asked me if it was good. And I sighed in the middle of a target and had to explain that nothing is good. There is no such thing as good television or good movies, just things with vibes you align with or don't. So now Brandon's referring to the chair, which is a Netflix series that came out uh, last week. I don't know. I just thought it was really interesting. A lot of people chimed in either agreeing or disagreeing and being really frustrated. Uh, I thought it would make an interesting conversation starter. Araceli, did this come across your timeline at all? It did. And I had no idea. Like, I'm so late to the hype on shows. Um, So Mm. the chair, I'm like, the chair? Is it like a reality TV show? Like, what is this? (laughs) So I, of course, had to like look up. I'm like, oh, okay, I've seen stuff like this. So yeah, to be clear. So the chair, it's a Sandra Oh show. And it's essentially like, it's about academia. And actually, it kind of fits into the next conversation on the show, which is all about uh, white men in crisis, (laughs) sort of as a genre. (laughs) Yeah, so I saw it and I, you know, When I read it, I'm like, this man is just, like, really getting through the pandemic and social isolation. (laughs) And, you know, life is not normal anymore, and it never will be. Um, Because, yes, of course course things are good. They're they're really great. Um, There are some great TV out there, entertainment, or whatever you want to, you know, fill your life with. But I get Mm -hmm. it. I get the essence of it, the... What is good mm-hmm. anymore? Like, I'm just going to go through this show and talk about it on Twitter and, like, start the next show and talk about it on Twitter. And it's a cycle. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Brandis? I, I thought about a few things. I thought about it, like, just thinking specifically about television um, mm-hmm. and how – I mean, because I read further down in the thread as well. And he says, like, mm-hmm. good died in 2010 or something. So right, this isn't right. just – yeah, this isn't just about, like, the, the pandemic for Brandon in this instance. Mm-hmm. And so it is a little bit frustrating because I'm like, is anything good? And some of that is, has the pandemic sort of dulled our senses um, and things aren't as good as they as they used to be, right? Because it is hard mm-hmm. to like fully feel something or to really be excited about the good. Um, and so part of me thought that, I'm like, wow. And then I also thought this is the golden age of television, right? And 
we have access sure. to more shows and more you know, platforms to receive those shows. And, you know, the creators of these shows are really pushing the envelope in a way that they hadn't been able to before the last, you know, five, 10 years with, you know, Mm -hmm. access to streaming. Um, And so then if everything is good, then nothing is good. But everything isn't good. <laughs> that is not the case. Ooh, I like that. I like that's like existential. I like yeah, I know. I, like I got that. a little deep, and I realized it's a little early. Um, but <laughs> no, I like it. No, I think it does kind of open up. I mean, there's some mm-hmm. pretty interesting existential questions around it, really. And I don't know. The thing that I keep thinking about is like, I. I really admire what he's saying in terms of kind of like, are things objectively good? Like, is this capital G good? And who gets to decide that? You know, like who's in the room when that conversation happens, I think is a really interesting question. And I think it's shifted a lot, partly because of stuff like Twitter, where more and more people can chime in. It also makes me think about something we've talked about on Nerdette in the past, which is the idea that like, actually, there should be no such thing as a guilty pleasure, because if you like it, then that's great. And like, that in a lot of ways should be all that matters, right? Like, why should we wait for some fancy critic person to tell us that something is good when it's like, well, I watched a couple episodes and it really worked for me. So, so it is good, you know? Yeah, that's true. And sometimes maybe it's not good. Maybe it's just good enough. (laughs) You know, it's, it's just fine. It's the thing that I've got right now and it's fine. So I don't know. One thing this made me wonder about is if there is something that you love that you like love, but that you know is actually objectively like capital b bad Arizeli. <laughs> oh man i'm putting you on um, the spot i know you know i think so here the same thing that goes back to guilty pleasures i yeah. will watch real housewives of whatever city right <laughs> i will sit there and i will watch real housewives of new york new jersey salt lake have all, you done the salt lake one so i haven't gotten into salt lake yet and um some, there are some that I don't watch, but that I want to watch, right? Like uh-huh. Potomac, I haven't watched. And okay. um, I'm, you know, Beverly Hills right now is like the biggest one. So of course, we're all into it. But that's the mm-hmm. thing. Like, I, there are people that I tell like, yes, oh my gosh, did you see this episode? And there are people that I'm like, I'm, I don't want them to think that I spend my days <laughs> watching Real Housewives of, you know, whatever. So um, reality TV is one of those, I think, that is just like objectively probably not good for us. But do we enjoy it? Yes. Do we watch yeah. it? Yes. And, sure. you know, my brother said something like, oh, well, reality TV is like, you know, McDonald's. It's like, you, it feels good. It tastes good. And your brain likes it. But is it mm. good for you? No. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's what I that's I think that's probably mine. Yeah, that's a great answer. What about you, Brandis? I, you know, I tried to think about this and I'm like, what is it that I just love that I would like, I was trying to think of it in the context of if I told other people, they would probably judge me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> perfect, perfect. And I'm like, what? and I'm like, it doesn't necessarily have to be a TV show, Brandis. Is it a thing I like to do or, yeah, sure. um, or something I like to eat or drink? And, and, and that's not to say you guys, I have amazing taste in everything <laughs> I eat, watch, drink, do is excellent. And um, because <laughs> that's not the case. I think I don't have a whole lot of time for like for the. I was junk. gonna say. I feel like as a working mother of children, that's mm-hmm. also like you probably just don't have as much time. I don't to have as much time trash for, like Araceli yeah. and I do. 
the one the one thing during the pandemic i think the bar did get a lot lower because i remember thinking you know those um the masked singer right the show the reality mm-hmm. show mm-hmm. i was like mm-hmm. i would never watch that this is ridiculous what <laughs> why do we need this type of show I watched every episode, okay? Like, I, through the pandemic, we all, like, my family and I, we all sat down and we watched it and we were into it and it was so much fun. And so that's one of the things that I'm like, maybe things have changed. Maybe we all have changed. We are different people coming out of this. (laughs) I don't know, though. The thing I think about a lot, too, is just that, like, when, especially with the, the kinds of jobs that all of us have in journalism, like, the news is really hard. The world can be a very difficult place to exist these days, which means that, like, the stuff I want to consume is kind of hot trash. Like, it's brain candy, you know? It's just, like, it's fun. It's salacious. It goes down easy. And that's, you know, like such a relief compared to the rest of the world in some ways, you know? It really is. And I think we need that. Yeah. yeah. Like I don't I don't fault any of us for the junk that we might consume. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we need that junk. The junk is good for you. Because <laughs> we get vegetables all day long. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, Brandis, Araceli, thank you both so much for doing this. It was such a treat. Oh, pleasure. Same here. I loved it. Thanks for having me. noticed that our society has been struggling with what to do about problematic dudes. And perhaps unsurprisingly, that question is also playing out in pop culture. Our next guest recently wrote an article that talks about just this, and I thought it was fascinating. Catherine Van Arendonk is a TV critic and staff writer for Vulture, who recently wrote about how TV studios are struggling about what to do with white guys. She's here now to talk more about that. Catherine, hey. Thank you so much for having me. So the article you wrote that I want to talk to you about today, it's headlined, TV's white guys are in crisis. Can you set that up for us? Yeah. um, I had been, you know, watching all the new stuff coming out this summer. And I started to notice a pattern in some of the new, particularly the new streaming shows that, that were coming out. I was thinking about Rutherford Falls. I was mm-hmm. thinking about an AMC show called Kevin Can Fuck Himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Mike White's The White Lotus, but then also a show on Netflix called The Chair. And what I was realizing is that in each of those shows, there is a, a woman, usually a woman of color, who is sort of either central or has some real uh, you know, she's, she's trying, they want her to be the protagonist. We would love to be able to like understand her arc, spend time with her. But there is also a white guy who would probably (laughs) have been the protagonist of this show five, seven years ago. And he is there. And instead of being the protagonist of these series, he becomes the obstacle right? Mm-hmm. He is, he either does not understand his own cluelessness, or maybe he does understand his own cluelessness, but like doesn't particularly care to do anything about it. And for whatever reason, these shows are all from different genres. They have very different twists and takes on this central idea, but it is this um, almost like narrative experiment of like what if we take the guy who used to be the center and then we just shift him slightly off how does that change 
the way all of the other characters around him behave. And like, can we actually shift him or does he fight back? I just think it's so interesting on a couple different levels. I think to your point, one thing that it's worth pointing out is that like, I feel like at least in the shows that you've mentioned, there is sort of like a spectrum of nefariousness of some of these characters, right? Like I think, you know, the, the dude, Nathan Rutherford and Rutherford falls played by Ed Helms is like, a lovely dude who's going through kind of an identity crisis about sort of like reframing his own history, given, you know, what what real history teaches us about cultural appropriation and colonialism. Yeah. Now, our journey begins with this man, <gasps> Lawrence Rutherford, founder of this town and my patriarchal ancestor. Fun fact, I'm actually the last Rutherford to live here in Rutherford Falls. Anyone see the resemblance? I think about someone like Kevin and Kevin can fuck himself played by Eric Peterson. And like, while we don't see him being at least emotionally abusive, it's very clear that he is like at best gaslighting his wife and has been for a really long time. Yeah. And also just an absolute jerk. Like even when he's not get, even though he, right. You bigoted, know, a lot of, racist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and making the kinds of stupid jokes that I think many of us can remember being just, around straight kinds of comedy jokes and now when you hear somebody mm-hmm. say them it's like oh wow wow okay we really huh Ooh. what a hoof um and so some of what that show is doing is pointing out that like he's a bad dude but what the show is also doing is saying maybe we should look back at all the guys that we thought were good dudes or, or at least acceptable dudes and then think huh wow maybe i need to reconsider a lot of things <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and something else you talk about in the article that I think is really important to point out is that like, yes, there are obviously conversations being had around like, let's just shift this person who maybe used to be the main character to the side. But what's really interesting to think about is that these dudes are still taking up a lot of space. Yeah, I, this is something that I I really don't have an answer to, but I think is really it is fascinating to watch all of these shows try to think through it because you can imagine versions of most of these shows, particularly Rutherford Falls, where the Rutherford character is just not even in there or he he is, but he's like just a side character and you do not have this kind of tension between Mm -hmm. the person um, Regan, who is, she is a member of the local Indian tribe and she is best friends with Nathan. And you get this sense that there's this like push pull between who's going to have the power. You can imagine a version of this show that's just about, Regan. You can imagine mm-hmm. a lot of these shows where you just, the chair is an academic sort of dramedy and it could just be about Sandra O's oh character, like making hard choices in an academic satire. But mm. there is something really honest, I think, about saying, but these guys are still here. What do we do with them? <laughs> you know? Right, right. <laughs> Oh, it reminds me of something my college roommate used to say about her ex-boyfriends, which was like, I don't wish them ill will, but I do kind of all wish that they could just like all be locked in a basement for the rest of my life. You know, it's like if I just (laughs) never had to hear from them again, that would be okay with me. And that's never going to be the case. Right. 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 I think that's not real. You know, in the most hopeful version, it doesn't have to be real. Like 
one of the other things I talk about in the piece is Ted Lasso and this idea of the per- like this incredibly generous, empathetic, thoughtful, powerful white dude. I brought you a little something. Oh, yeah. Cookies. <laughs> or as y'all call them here, biscuits, right? Though I do not recommend you smother these in gravy. Oh, Ted, I don't, I don't really... Oh, come on, I'll take a look at there. Oh, this do look good. Right? Go ahead, take a nibble. He has gone yes. through some kind of black box reformation <laughs> period that has <laughs> turned him into just the loveliest, kindest, most, you know, endearing, imaginable white dude protagonist. Yeah. And I think that is part of why we are so, why that show has become so popular. But there is yeah. also something about the mysteriousness of how he got that way that hmm. um, it, it does let us kind of skip that middle part. Now, I have the benefit of having seen more episodes of Ted Lasso than are currently out. Mm-hmm. And it is fascinating to watch season two actually start to look at that. Like, how did oh, he good. become this person? But it is, I think, really notable that they skipped that part in the beginning, right? Mm-hmm, that they did mm-hmm. not start with, like, how do you get to this place? That he just arrives there already fully formed so that we can fall in love with him. And then they get to be backtrack and do the messy stuff. Hmm. That is a really good point. Ooh, now I'm excited to finish season two. So I don't know. I, you talk about this a little in the article, too. But I think it's also important in this conversation to reflect on like how we've thought about some deeply problematic dudes from shows in the past. Mm. Um, I think the office is a great example, right? Like Michael Scott is kind of a monster. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and, and I just wonder like, how, how are you thinking about sort of reckoning with that nostalgia um, when it's a fondness for something that's actually pretty icky? I mean, I think about like Arrested Development too, which is one of my favorite shows. And it's like, sure. you know, I mean, speaking of a bunch of monsters and he literally says I'm a monster, you know? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I came from an English department. I have I spent a lot of time reading Victorian literature. I spent a lot of time mm. reading, you know, centuries old stuff, yeah. which is full of monsters. Oh, that's I very mean, true. Like Mr. Rochester from Jane Eyre, who was definitely a dick. Mr. Rochester was literally the example on the tip of my tongue. And I think when they are farther away, it is easier for us to look at these works of art and say, okay, but the world was different then. Like, I understand that this man is a mess. I understand that we would not think of him as a romantic hero. I can place it in its historical context, and I can still understand how revolutionary this novel was at the time. I can understand all of the other things that are happening here. I can love it, and part of my love for it is seeing what I consider to be these people's flaws. And it is harder to do that for things in recent memory, things that we loved without seeing the flaws first, but it is not impossible. We do not have to just, you know, the world is not black and white. Art is not black and white. We do not have to throw away all of these things and just consider them banned forever. But it is our responsibility to look inside of ourselves and say, but I do understand that this is not the way I think people should behave. Or I do understand that this work of art, I don't have to think of it as endorsing this behavior. 
which is something else that can be really tricky. I think a lot of people want the most beloved characters to be held up as as examples. Mm. We do not have to see every television show being made as creating models for us to follow. We can do both. We can say yes and. And I think that's, that's yeah, that's my takeaway here. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for talking with me. And thank you, especially for just giving me words to the genre that I couldn't quite come up with myself. But the idea of just like white guy as hurdle is like definitely going to be shorthand for me in the future. And I really appreciate that. (laughs) Truly my pleasure. I'm I'm so thrilled that 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 will be a useful term for you and hopefully for lots of us. In just a minute, author Jess Zimmerman tells us about how the patriarchy informed myths about lady monsters. It's a great time. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Our next guest is Jess Zimmerman. She's an editor at Quirk Books, the co-author of the 2017 book Basic Witches, and her newest book is called Women and Other Monsters. It's an exploration of mythical monsters like Medusa, Scylla, the sirens and the sphinx, and essentially how the patriarchy informed stories about them. Jess, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to talk to you about this. I feel like this stuff just makes my little brain light right up. Uh, what was your inspiration for it? Well, so possibly like you, and I think probably like a lot of people who listen to a show called Nerdette, I was very <laughs> into uh, Greek mythology when I was when I was little, and I had um, I, w- I was very into Dolaire's book of Greek myths, which I think is really like kind of a touchstone for a particular kind of nerdy little kid. Mm -hmm. But I just kind of started looking back, I think, on these stories and the ways that they've been uh, perpetuated in both in my life and in the culture and sort of saying, oh, these have been really, really influential images. And they're influential, not always in, I think, a, a positive way. Yeah, it kind of reminds me, it's a quote that I mention a lot on the show, but that's because it's so good from Lindy West's Shrill, where mm-hmm. she says that feminism is just the long, slow realization that everything you love hates you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, for people who maybe haven't quite made that connection yet, when it comes to mythology, I mean, it's fair to say that like pretty much most of the monsters in these stories that we maybe are familiar with from growing up or from AP Civ or whatever, like the monsters are all women pretty much, right? A lot of the monsters are women and and more of the in in some ways more of the monsters are women than you realize um because some of them I think 
a little bit the the way that they're gendered has kind of fallen off. So we don't necessarily think of the chimera as female, um, mm. but she was canonically female. Um, we don't necessarily think of like, you know, Charybdis doesn't have a body. She's a whirlpool um, in the Odyssey, but she mm. is, you know, sexed as female. <laughs> and so there's like a real sort of thread of having these monsters be uh, be feminized in some way. And, you know, and to, and to be clear, like, I don't, I don't think this is, an, I don't intend this as like a takedown of mythology, right? Because like you said, right. this is true of so much of culture. It's really just a takedown of culture. <laughs> so speaking of the specific stories, can you maybe give us an example and then talk through like the patriarchal elements? We could do Medusa. Oh, yeah, Medusa is a good one. Um, So we sort of, I think we generally understand the story of Medusa as she, you know, she has snake hair. She's very frightful looking. In fact, she's so frightful looking that if you look at her directly in the face, you will turn to stone. And so, I mean, I think in that particular case, you know, kind of the the feminist elements are are just right on the surface. Um, Yeah, yeah. there's a lot. And that, I actually, I mean, they're, they're on the surface enough that I wanted to use her as a vehicle for sort of talking about the idea of ugliness and the idea of like someone being frightful to look upon. Mm-hmm. And how dare a woman not at least be beautiful. Yeah. If nothing yeah. Else, and the, right? and the taking a woman's beauty away is essentially, you know, a punishment that you're neutralizing her in a way. Um, but then that's also Medusa's mm-hmm. great, great power is that she is so frightful to look on that she can use that as a weapon. And in fact, after Perseus cuts her head off, Athena takes the head and puts it on her shield to like use it as essentially a weapon for herself. So hmm. she's perfectly happy hmm. to make use of kind of the power of ugliness. Um, but it's also at the same time, it's being used as this sort of way of, of neutralizing someone that you, you know, want to punish. I just love that you're really leaning into the idea that ugliness can be a strength instead of a vulnerability or, I mean, even like a liability. So your book came out in March. When you were working on it, Madeline Miller's Circe came out. It was super popular. Mm -hmm. Her first book, Song of Achilles, also like exploded back onto the charts. There have been a number of reimaginings of ancient myths and stories recently. There have also been quite a few new translations of ancient texts by women, which I think is super exciting. Why do you think there's an appetite for these new perspectives? I mean, like I said, these are wonderful stories, you know, and you're probably one of the things you're thinking of is probably the new Beowulf, right? Yes, by Maria Devana Headley. Yeah. Beowulf is is such a cool story. Um, And it doesn't have to be a story that shuts us out. It was certainly created without kind of having women in mind or, you know, in, in Beowulf, right? Again, you've got kind of the loathsome, scary woman. But they've persisted this long because they're exciting and also because there is a sort of elasticity to them. Um, you know, mm-hmm. they, don't, they don't have to remain exactly as they are and they can be adapted and they can move with the times. And so, you know, so, so it's really, it's a case of sort of looking at these stories and being like, well, why shouldn't we have a piece of that? Um, you know, why shouldn't we be involved in this story? Jess, thank you so much. This was really a delight. Keeping your fabulous, monstrous self. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. This was great. (laughs) 
All right, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. We have a book club discussion of Clara and the Sun coming to your ears on Tuesday, so keep an ear out for that. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on the internet. We are on Instagram and Twitter at Nerdat Podcast. I am on those things as Greta M. Johnson. We also have a really sweet little Facebook group. It's wonderful because listeners can talk to each other, especially about you know shows they just watched or books they just read or whatever, things they want to talk to other people about. So it's a great place to share interests with people who like the same stuff as you because they listen to a show like this one. You can search for Nerdette Headquarters or go to facebook.com slash groups slash HQ. And hey, did you know we have a newsletter? It's pretty fun. You can sign up for that at wbez.org slash AF. The show is produced by me and Hannah Edgar. Our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. See you later. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.